Well, good morning. Welcome to Ridgetop Church. Uh, my name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor here, and we've been working our way through Genesis oh so slowly. We're, we're still in the third chapter. Um, I'm surprised some of you returned for the second half of chapter three. I'm really glad that you came. Um, so it's going to be a good time. Um, we've been working through the story of the origin of the universe in Genesis 1 and 2, a cosmology. Uh, that's in, in the scriptures, and we see a God who is uh, self-existent and all good and all powerful create uh, the universe, and it's beautiful and complicated and unified um, and fully and perfectly integrated. And his crowning achievement, this, this ultimate of creations, is human beings. He entrusts those human beings with uh, some responsibility for the cosmos uh, to be a part of procreation, uh, filling uh, the earth with uh, image bearers, other human beings, but also administration, stewarding this cosmos that they've been in, entrusted with uh, by God. Part of the order of that cosmos is that God, the creator, is also the authority, which makes sense. You see this all throughout the scriptures. This acknowledgement of God as creator and authority. I was reading this morning, uh, Psalm 95, 6. Oh, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord and maker. You see those two threads of his absolute authority, but also that he is creator. And as authority, he commands. He gives rules in the garden. And we talked about last week, this interplay between God's permissions and his prohibitions. They work together. He prohibits some things, but those things protect other things that he is permitting. He prohibits, for instance, lying, which then permits a society of truth. You can't, also, you can't do both. You can't lie and have a society of truth simultaneously. There are prohibitions and there are permissions, and these are communicated by these two trees in the garden, that of the tree of life, the permission, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the prohibition. And as we looked at last week, they broke the rules, that it's more than just breaking some rules for rules' sake. Uh, it's also breaking relationship with God, uh, the good authority. And God had warned them about that, breaking his rules and rupturing the relationship and he said back in Genesis 2, verses 16, 17, the Lord God commanded the man, there's the authority, saying, you may surely eat of the tree, every tree of a garden, there's the permission, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And we said that that word that's being translated die there is not just a physical death, but it's a, it's a cosmic condemnation. It's a disintegration, a decreation of all that God had created. Um, death, sin, and, and the effects of sin, ultimately which are, are death, uh, are not really a thing. They are just the destruction of a thing. They are not a creation. I think sometimes we think about, if I could just color outside of God's rules and, and his, uh, his ways, then I could come up with something new and better. But it's not how it works. It's actually an unraveling of things that are true and good and beautiful. You might think of it this way, um, something that's been created, like this you know, vase from H-E-B, um, that was created as something that's functional, um, it, it's beautiful to some degree, uh, it has a purpose, 
right? And it, so it's been created. And you think of, of sin and the results of sin more like taking this vase and taking a hammer to it, right? Right? Now, you don't look at the, what I've just done and go, oh, that's an amazing piece of art, Robert. That's a, Wow, you've improved it. No, I haven't improved it. Now, it's still the vase to some degree, right? It's the same things, but it's not beautiful anymore. It's, it's not functional anymore. Again, it, it still has some resemblance to the creation, the original intention, but it's been decreated. And so that's something akin to what is happening to the cosmos. Is it true and good and beautiful? Yeah. On some, one hand, yes, it is. But is there also something wrong, terribly wrong? Yes, there is. There's been a decreation because of human sin. The most devastating decreation or disintegration is the relationship between God and humans. Genesis 3.8, we start to see the first glimpse of this reality. Uh, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You can see the rupture. They know it. God hasn't said, you get out of my presence. They, they, they just have a sense that something's changed. They're no longer seeking the presence, longing for the presence, hungering for the presence of God. They're running and they're hiding. Um, it was such a, a small act, but uh, it had cosmic consequences. Right? Uh, I think of it as if you pull the emergency door uh, in the airplane at 30,000 feet. This actually happened back in May. This guy was very anxious. He just lost his job. He was, he was, his anxiety was increasing, increasing as, as they were actually bringing it down to about 1,000 feet. It wasn't at 30,000, it was about 1,000. And he just decided he wanted out of that plane, and he hit the emergency lever, and the door opened. And all chaos broke out in that plane. And so a, a number of people had to be taken to the hospital. Thankfully, thankfully no one died. If it had been at 30,000 feet, it probably would have had some, uh, some, some, some real um, issues in terms of people dying. But, but it, it was absolute chaos. And there was no one who could fix it. <laughs> you know, one, one of, one of the, the flight attendants didn't go over and say, let me get that door. Let me fix that. Let me, let me repressurize the cabin. Let me restore this to order. All they could do was mitigate the disorder. And oxygen masks dropped and people strapped in and they did everything they could to try to manage the chaos in that plane. And so something something on a cosmic level has happened like this, right? As Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and everything is affected. Chaos breaks out everywhere in the cosmos. Now, again, is it also partially true and good and beautiful? Yes, but everything. There's something wrong with everything in the cosmos because of human sin. Um, the Apostle Paul writes, about it this way in Romans 8, 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The whole creation affected by the sin 
of Adam and Eve. And so not, not just is it is cosmic, but then there's also a, a, a micro-level experience of this, right? This disintegration, right? Our, our personal individual relationship with God is affected by that sin. There's a separation between us and God. Our relationships with each other are affected because of sin. That Our relationships with our own selves and our sense of guilt and, and shame and anxiety and fear and all those things, that's, that's partly the fall that's expressing itself um, because of human sin. And then the relationship with the earth itself, a hostile relationship most days between the earth and human beings. Now, in the second half of, of Genesis 3, God illustrates the disintegration to Adam and Eve. Um, and, and so it's, it's not like he's explaining every effect of sin, but he's letting them know, here's how it's going to affect you personally so they can understand what's, what's just happened. He's also going to have a few words for the serpent in terms of his judgment. So what we're going to see woven together are illustrations of the result of the fall of human beings, but also the remedy to the fall. And they're woven together. So there's a result of the fall, and then there's a remedy to the fall, if you're taking notes. So let's look at the first, uh, the first part, to the serpent. Uh, Genesis 3.14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the serpent, Satan, is cursed. He's one of two things that is going to be cursed in this section. And he's cursed to a life of slithering around, eating dust. Now, I'm no fan of snakes. I'd much rather talk about trees, like last week. Um, but I, I don't think God is necessarily cursing the actual animal uh, of the snake. Uh, again, I don't like snakes because I grew up in Texas. Um, but snakes are actually, for the most part, uh, they're actually helpful uh, in keeping uh, rodents under control and different things like that. Um, but it seems more symbolic regarding God's judgment over Satan. That he is being uh, judged for his rebellion against the authority of God. And... That judgment against Satan is also connected to the remedy for the rupture um, that is going to come from the woman, right? And so these are God's first words regarding the woman who we've just seen take the fruit from the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he's signaling to the woman but while talking to the serpent that she is actually going to be a part of the redemption. She's going to be part of the remedy to the rupture, that her offspring will somehow be a Satan crusher. And that so she is going to participate in the remedy, that while Satan will bruise or crush the heel of this offspring, the offspring will deal a deadly blow and crush the head of the serpent. And as Christians, we understand this to be the first prediction of Jesus, the Messiah, this offspring who will come and will deal with sin and its effects. We see here that somehow this salvation is going to come 
from a human and for humans, right? It's going to come from humans in that babies are going to have babies, are going to have babies, are going to have babies, and eventually they're going to bring forth this offspring. And this offspring is going to be able to remedy the rupture. We read in Hebrews 2, the speaking of this offspring, Jesus says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Why did he do that? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, that is human, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That the offspring is going to come and he's going to be crushed, but through that being crushed, he's going to actually remedy the rupture, the, the sin and all of its effects. Now, as a preacher, I want to keep that hope for the end. And I actually thought about skipping over that and then going back at the end for the big finish. Um, but God doesn't. God doesn't in this passage. He's already bringing forth hope before he talks to the woman, before he talks to the man. That, that even signaling to uh, Eve, who uh, obviously she is feeling a lot of guilt and shame at this point, and he's letting her know, you're going to be part of the remedy of, from, from this rupture, that this offspring will deliver the killer blow to the serpent. Now, there's hope there, but there's also some serious consequences for what they've done. And so then God moves to the woman to speak to her about her domain and how her domain is going to be affected by the fall. So verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And so remember that the woman, last week we saw that she was created from a human for a human. She was created from Adam's side and she was created to be this helper completer uh, for Adam. And this is, this is beautiful, as we read about this in Genesis 2, that male and female were given this ability to procreate and to fill the world with image bearers, that also the man and woman were created the same. They're, they're both humans, and so able to be companions, but then different, and they're able to have this complementarity together, to partner together in order to procreate and to administrate in the cosmos. It's absolute beauty. Such a harmony uh, that we saw in Genesis 2. But now the woman's domain is in rebellion against her. Um, childbearing and child rearing are going to keep on happening, just like they were uh, supposed to be happening in the created order, but they're going to be painful. And this word that's translated pain can also mean toil. It can mean labor, hardship, even emotional sorrow. Everything from menstrual periods to pregnancy to difficulty in raising children is going to be fraught with pain and difficulty. Um, and not only is there going to be disintegration between uh, her and her children, but there's also going to be a breakdown in the relationship between her and her husband. There's going to be a kind of battle between the sexes. Now, instead of a beautiful complementarity between them, she desires to control him 
and he is ruling over her. And not in a way that is a good authority where benefits are flowing down. Uh, This is the kind of authority that is exploiting one who is supposed to be taken care of. Um, This is a profound description of the predicament of the daughters of Eve. That her feminine superpowers of beauty, of relational nurture are being twisted into something that can be used to control or manipulate. While at the same time, her feminine superpowers of beauty, even physical vulnerability, uh, is turning into on-ramps for exploitation, especially by men. I don't know how many of you saw the Barbie movie, but uh, when Barbie says goodbye to Barbie land, and then she goes into, you know, the quote-unquote real world, uh, she experiences exploitation for the first time. She doesn't understand. Why are men looking at me this way? Why are they doing these catcalls and, and et cetera? And so uh, Eve, to some degree, is about to step out of Barbie land, and she's going to step into something that is decreated. Now, this doesn't mean that uh, somehow the man doesn't experience these effects in his relationship with his wife. Of course he does. It doesn't mean that he's not experiencing the breakdown of of these kinds of things in his raising of children, of course. But again, God God is kind of zeroing in on these very particular domains to help each one understand what this sin and the effects of sin have have affected for them. Um, And it's not a shaming of them, like, shame on you, I can't believe you did this, rubbing their nose in it. It's letting them know about the knowledge of the root of what's going to be happening to them going forward. They need to understand the root. They need to understand why things are the way that they are. And so God, in his mercy, is letting them know the reason it's going to feel this way when you're trying to rear uh, children or you're trying to, 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 to have a marriage is because of sin and its effects on the cosmos. Now, God will speak also uh, to Adam in verse 17. Uh, verse, uh, the first part says, And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, quote, you shall not eat of it. Uh, this is how God starts his comments to Adam. And it's very different than the way he talks to Eve. Uh, he reminds Adam, Hey, I gave you a clear command. And uh, that Adam didn't uh, listen to God's voice, he says, and that instead you listen to your wife's voice, and God quotes himself. This is really interesting, right? God says these words, and then he quotes himself, and he says, I said, you shall not eat of it. Again, last week we talked about this. God's words matter. It matters that we get God's words right And God, yet again, is teaching Adam about his words and that his words matter uh, to God and certainly should matter uh, to us. Now, he speaks to Adam regarding his domain, right? And he says in the second half of verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the consequences of the man's domain, he goes from having this amazingly ordered 
cosmos where everything is in harmony and he gets to, yes, work hard, but he gets all this fruitfulness out of the ground that he's working. Um, and now that ground is in rebellion against him. He can still get some fruitfulness out of it, and he's going to have to get that fruitfulness out of it in order to feed himself and feed his family, but it will be pain. Same word. And so it can mean toil, it can mean labor, hardship, sorrow. And so he's letting him know that domain that was so fruitful for you is now rebelling against you, and and it's going to feel like futility. You're going to put $10 worth of work into it, and you're going to get $5 worth of fruitful, fruitfulness out of it, if you're lucky, if you're lucky. Um, there's so many things in life that feel futile, and the older you get, the more you realize this. Right? I remember when we bought our, our, our home um, in Massachusetts, it was so exciting, and the, the home was in really great shape. They had cared for it so well. Everything was painted. Everything was in order. The yard was in great shape, and it didn't take long for it to start falling apart. And things needed to be painted. Things needed to be repaired. And we had three kids that were totally destroying it uh, just because they were kids. Right? I mean, literally, the banister, this beautiful wooden banister, it just kind of came apart. And, and the reason was is because the boys would come around. Well, honestly, all three of them would do this. They'd grab the banister, and they would, like, whip around onto the, the stairs, you know, and the thing was just literally just falling apart because of all the wear and tear on the house. And so now I live in an apartment. And I mean, one little scratch on anything. I'm like calling the apartment. I'm like, I'm sure they hate me. And I'm like, could you fix this? Could you fix this? Right? It's so awesome. Right? Now, it's not awesome that we're pouring money into rent. But it's awesome that I'm not having to care for the, the futility of, of a home. But everything's like this. Our bodies are like this. Anything that we, that we have and we tend or we work in this world, there's a, there's a futility that's sort of built in to it. Now, there's more going on here than the dirt is going to produce thorns and thistles, right? The dirt is literally going to rule over human beings. There's another irony here. Uh, we talked about last week, there's the irony of the serpent ruling over uh, Adam and Eve with, with his words. And now the irony is that the dirt that's supposed to be ruled over by human beings is now doing the ruling, right? It says, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You were created out of dust. You went from disorder to order, but you're going to go back to disorder. You're going to go back to dust. And this is going to happen to every son of Adam, every daughter of Eve. They're going to have a material body and it's going to be ensouled with the breath of life, but then they're going to experience death. They're going to experience the disintegration, the, the separation of body and soul. And God told them that this is what would happen, right? He told them back in Genesis 2, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die, die. You will experience this cosmic death. And there's certainly more effects from the rupture than just pain and child rearing and marriage and agriculture and eventual physical death, right? There's an adversarial relationship for the most part between humans and animals, which is, which is so, so lame. Like we could have been in right relationship with animals. Wouldn't that be awesome? Just hanging out with bears and lions and stuff. But, but now they want to eat us. Uh, it wasn't like that in the pre-fall world, right? There would be drought and floods and hurricanes 
tornadoes, right? Fungal, viral, bacterial infections that will affect plants and animals and humans. There'll be cancer, literally your own cells attacking you. I mean, it's, it's horrific to think about some of the consequences here of sin. Conflicts of all kinds among spouses, parents, parents and kids, siblings, friends, political parties, whole countries. Right now, the Middle East is coming unglued. And it's chaos. And, and, you know, we can point to maybe some political things or some history things, but, but we know what's at the root. We know what's at the root. Sin. Human sin and all of its effects. The door latch was pulled by humans at 30,000 feet. And all hell, literally, broke loose. And you may say, well, I don't like that story. You may say, I, I don't believe that story. I choose to believe a different story. I choose to believe that everything is inherently good and that we will come up with clever solutions to fix it all. If that is your meta-narrative, then more power to you. (laughs) But I think this narrative actually, actually explains better what we experience in this world. It it out-narrates all the other narratives. That as Christians, we can point to what is good and true and beautiful, and we can tell people why. Because God created it. We can also point to why things are so messed up. And why as hard as we might work to fix them, and certainly we should, we know that ultimately we cannot. We cannot fix these things. That only God can bring about that kind of a comprehensive fix. And I think we all know this deep down. That on one hand, things are good, but on the other hand, everything is messed up. This is more than just a story of creation and and decreation. Right? There is a recreation story, and, and you start to see a glimmer of it there in, in what we've read earlier about the offspring. And then here, we see it in verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, he's moving toward his wife with a good authority. He is actually moving toward her with goodness and tenderness. Um, he had just thrown her under the bus when he blamed shift to her. And um, basically threw her, you know, under the bus to God, which is pretty serious. Um, But he has been listening to God's words, not just about himself, but he's been listening to God's words about his wife. And so he's naming her, and he's not naming her fruit eater or lawbreaker or cosmos crusher, right? He's naming her Eve. Eve, the mother of all living. There's a great, I mean, a great amount of dignity in this name. And he's pointing to the fact that she's, yes, going to play an essential role in populating the earth with image bearers, but also she's going to bring forth life through this offspring that is going to remedy the rupture. This is also a sign of of Adam's good authority. And we've been getting glimpses of his authority as we were moving through the passages in Genesis 1 and 2. You remember that we said naming things communicates authority. That God names things in Genesis 1, like the sea and the sky and the sea and the land. Obviously communicating he has authority over 
the cosmos, but then Adam is invited by God to name the animals, right? And so he's delegated authority by God to name these animals, and he does that. And then at the end of Genesis 2, we see Adam naming Eve, at least in a general way, right? He sees her, and he says, you are Isha, and I'm Ish, right? He says, you are woman, and I'm man. So he's already done this once already in the pre-fall time in the Genesis 2, And then here he names her with specificity. He doesn't just say, you're an Isha. He says, your name is Eve, and it's particular to her. And so he's he's moving toward her with tenderness, with with goodness. And some of these threads that I'm picking up on in Genesis 2 and 3 are, are places that we would go to say that God has established some kind of gender roles. And he's done that from the very beginning in the created order. Um, And and, and those gender roles are uh, expressed in the home and in the church. These are the two main places where we see those played out. The Apostle Paul even uses Genesis 2 and 3 to make a case for some kind of authority structure in the church that is related to gender. So 1 Timothy 2 verses 12 through 14, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And you're like, Paul, where are you, where are you coming from, man? What, where are you getting that? Right? And he says, verse 13, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So there he's talking about Genesis 2. And then he says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And there's Genesis 3. And you might think, well, he's throwing a lot of shade on, on Eve because he's saying she was deceived. He's saying Adam was not deceived, that Adam knew better, and Adam still made the wrong choice. And so really the shade is being thrown on Adam. But even though that's true, he's still maintaining this pattern of good authority in the church. And so you see him making this kind of supra or transcultural argument for this gender pattern in the church, and he does something similar in marriage. Then he rolls right into 1 Timothy 3, which is about elders. And elders are the, uh, the men in the church that have this authoritative teaching role. Right? It doesn't mean that women don't have leadership gifts and teaching gifts and that they don't use those in the church. Of course they do and they should. But, but there's this role, this pattern whereby men are leading as elders, as authoritative teachers, and this pattern is actually communicating the gospel. And you see the same pattern being communicated through marriage. As husbands are lovingly leading their wives, they're actually communicating the, the gospel. This is, this is part of uh, why these things even exist. And so we see Adam moving toward Eve with tenderness and with a, a good authority. And then we see God moving toward them in the very next verse, Genesis 3.21. It says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. It's a pretty profound moment here. Don't miss this. So the first record of physical death in, in the cosmos is God killing animals. He's the one who's producing this, this death. Why is he doing that? He's doing that to cover the, the shame of Adam and Eve. Um, the death of these animals is for the good of Adam and Eve. And it's just the beginning of this death-to-life pattern that we see in the Bible. So you see these patterns that are being started in Genesis. They're going to go throughout the Scriptures all the way to the very end of the Bible. And uh, this death of one thing 
that gives way to life for another. Um, this was not lost on the Israelites as they read this, this, this passage and connected it with their own sacrificial system. Uh, they would kill and bleed out millions of animals, not only to feed themselves, but for the purpose of paying for their sins. But these, ne- these sacrifices never seemed to work. They never seemed to, 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 to pay for their sins. And, and so our understanding and what the New Testament writers tell us is that, that these, these were always pointing to a true and better sacrifice. And that that sacrifice actually did pay for human sin. We read about this in places like Hebrews 10. And uh, Hebrews written to a group of Jewish Christians that were being persecuted for their Christian faith and thinking about maybe just going back to Judaism. And so the, the writer of Hebrews is trying to explain to them why it's important that they stay Christians, right? So Hebrews 10 verse 1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having been, once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He's very forthright. He's like, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament did not take care of sin, but it was pointing forward to something else, is what you read Hebrews ten eleven. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, but... When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, and by a single offering has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So when Christ is dying on the cross, he doesn't just die a human death, although it is that, he die dies. He dies the, and, and takes on the cosmic condemnation that Adam and Eve had brought into the universe. And so he is comprehensively making all things new. He is recreating that which has been decreated by sin. Jesus becomes a kind of second Adam, who instead of tripping the emergency door at 30,000 feet, instead puts all the chaos back to order again. Paul describes this in Romans 5. Verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So he's talking about Adam, right? For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So Paul is recounting, restating what happened in Genesis 3, that Adam's sin resulted in a comprehensive unraveling of the cosmos, a.k.a. death, and that Adam was a type of one to come, that a second Adam, an offspring of Adam, would one day come and put things to right. And so we have Adam sort of standing over one humanity of, of those who are in sin and under guilt and shame. And then this offspring comes and starts a new humanity. We see that in Romans 5, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, that is, of Adam. For if many died through one man's trespass, 
Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass, there's Adam's trespass, brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, talking about Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That promised offspring in Genesis 3, he came. He came. All those babies had babies who had babies who had babies who had babies who eventually brought forth Jesus Christ. So yes, through Adam number one, we received the consequence of sin, which is death. Is what people mean when they talk about original sin, is this consequence that results from that sin. But through Adam two, we're given the unearned forgiveness, and that is received through faith. And so this is what's being offered to you this morning. This is not just about a cosmic recreation. This is about you and your life as well. You most likely have experienced this whole decreation, maybe a whole lot of decreation. And you've been wondering, like, what, how, what am I going to do to fix this? How do, I, how do I reorder my life so that I can thrive? I long for this. I long for what's true and good and beautiful. I just can't get to it. Well, there's a reason. It's, it's because it can only be put right by God's grace in Christ. I mean, I could sit here with super glue for all next week. I could not put this back together. Nor can we put our lives back together. Except by the grace of God through Christ. So this isn't just some cosmos level kind of thing. Which I think we need to think about that. Because I, I need this narrative to swallow up this whole world. Right? Because otherwise I can see what's going on around the world or going on in my own life or in my neighbor's life, my friend's life, and just think, is the gospel big enough for that? Yes, the gospel is big enough for whatever it is that is going on, that, that is chaotic. It can, it, can, it can swallow that up. It can bring order out of the disorder. And so there is a remedy that has been offered through Christ on a cosmic level, but also on a micro level in our lives. Um, we're going to go someplace way better even than Eden. So, so, so what's happening through Christ is, 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 yes, in the here and now, he is doing new things. He's making us new. But he is also going to make the entire cosmos new. This, this is how uh, powerful what Christ does on the cross through his death, burial, resurrection uh, really is. And so we can read at the end of the Bible. So we've gone from Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to, the, to the, some of the very last chapters. Revelation 20, verse 13, is talking about what God's going to do with Satan and death. It says, the sea gave up the dead who were, in, who were in it, and death in Hades, that is death in hell, gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death in Hades, actually Hades isn't hell, Hades is the place of the dead. Anyway, I said that wrong. Uh, we're thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so what you see is the, the dead being brought forth, but also death in Hades. 
And, and, and so deaf and Hades can't receive Christ and have salvation. <laughs> they, just go, they just go into this ultimate decreation. But those who have received Christ and have received that new salvation, they're, they're being brought out of that chaos. They're bring back out of that uh, predicament of death, of having their body and soul disintegrated, and now they're going to be recreated. They're going to be resurrected, and they're going to be brought into a new heaven and a new earth, which is what we see in the very next chapter, Revelation 21, uh, 1 through 5. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, quote, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. God's not just putting together, back together, a, you know, a vase that was crushed. He's putting together the entire cosmos. This is how powerful the gospel is. This is how powerful what Christ has done on the cross through his death, through his resurrection, is to, to recreate, to make a new creation. And this is what we're, we're waiting for as believers in Christ. We know that even though we, we know Christ and we're experiencing to some degree the reordering of our relationships with self and others and earth because we now have a reordered relationship with God, we're already, we're, we're at the same time, we're kind of in this already, but not yet. But we're, we're still wrestling with so many of the effects of the fall. And, and we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting for the new creation, for all things to be made new. And one of the things that Jesus told us to do uh, while we wait as a church is to take communion together, to be reminded that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body, broken, crushed for you. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing that that next day. He knew he was going to deliver the killer blow to the serpent. He was going to deliver the killer blow to sin and all of sin's effects. And so he offered up himself to be the offspring who was crushed on our behalf. In the same way, took the cup, and after he had given thanks, he took the cup and he said to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many. It is for the forgiveness of sins. He, he knew. This, this wasn't just uh, an act of love that he was doing that you could sort of like exemplify as a loving person. He knew he was paying the price for our sin, for humanity's sin, and ushering in a making of all things new. So this is what we're, this is what we're doing. <laughs> this is what we're celebrating. This is what we're looking forward to as we take the bread and the cup this morning. Uh, this, this kind of hope that we have, that we look forward to, but also that we get to live in, in the here and now. And if you're not yet a Christian, I want to encourage you to receive that good news by faith this morning, to receive this gift 
that Christ has done for you to forgive you of your sins and to enter into that relationship with him of being a son or a daughter, right? You, you, you're a son or daughter, you're a son of, of Adam, the daughter of Eve, and now you've been given a new identity. You're a part of a new humanity now, uh, a, a child of, of the Father through faith in the Son and dwelt with the Spirit of God. And that only occurs through Christ. So if you've not yet received him by faith, I want to encourage you to do that. For those of you who you have done that, I want to encourage you to come and be a part of taking the bread and the cup. It is a reminder of our sins being forgiven, but also the new identity that we've been given as sons and daughters of God who are eating at his table. So let's pray. God, I thank you for this really good news. I can feel so weighed down by my own sin, by my own struggles, by the sin and struggles of those around me, by world politics and everything in between. And I'm just so grateful that there is hope in you that is so big that it swallows all that up. That it truly is making things new now, but it's also going to make all things new in the life to come. And so we're grateful for that, and we're grateful that you did what it took to make that happen. Uh, to, to be crushed in order to provide for us this new life in your resurrection, your ascension, and your one day return. And we are doing this in anticipation of your return, Lord. Uh, we're, we're, we're ready, <laughs> ready for you to come and make all things new by the power of the gospel. And so would you, you bless the bread and the cup in our time together as we, as we sing, as we worship, as we contemplate these things that we've just heard from your word. God, help us to, to be given great amount of hope. Uh, sober us up as well, just of, of some of the realities of the world that we live in. Uh, but God, I pray that um, we would have a, a tremendous amount of hope in the midst of the things that we're facing. Uh, and that hope would be placed solely on you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.